This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. This morning on Face the Nation, we begin a week President Biden said will determine the course of his presidency and whether Democrats maintain control of Congress. At the G20 summit in Rome, President Biden found it easier to broker agreements with other countries than his own party in Congress. He ended a costly tit-for-tat with Europe over steel tariffs and brokered a plan to block corporations from shopping around the world for low tax rates. We're going to continue together and prove to the world that democracies, democracies are taking on hard problems and delivering sound solutions. But significant national security challenges from adversaries like Iran still loom. When would you like talks with Iran to resume? Dire projections for a warming planet make the work at his next stop, a U.N. climate summit, even more challenging as experts warn the very survival of our planet is at stake. We'll hear from Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo. Back at home, Democrats in Congress are still tangled in tough negotiations over President Biden's massive spending proposals, which the president gave a final push to before leaving for Europe. We'll hear from California Congressman Ro Khanna, a leading progressive pushing colleagues on the left to stand together. We'll also talk with Congressman John Curtis about bipartisan support for rebuilding America's roads and bridges and his effort to get fellow Republicans to help limit the damage from climate change. Then, on the COVID front, vaccinations for younger children could be available in a matter of days. We'll talk with pediatrician Claire Bogart, who oversees the COVID vaccine program at Washington, D.C.'s Children's National Hospital. Plus, current and former presidents weigh in on the gubernatorial race in Virginia. What's at stake for Democrats and Republicans? We'll have a preview. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin a consequential week in Washington with lawmakers eyeing votes on two key bills that make up President Biden's domestic agenda, while he also pushes to revive American leadership abroad. Overseas this morning, the challenge of how to survive on a hotter planet faces world leaders at the G20 summit. The president also discussed other national security threats with often troublesome ally Turkey's President Erdogan. With much of the rest of the globe still fighting COVID and seeking access to a vaccine, recovering from this pandemic is a challenge for the economy and a slow global supply chain. The increasingly tense relationship with China is at the heart of all of it. 
And Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who's traveling with the president, met today with Chinese officials for the first time since his tense confrontation with them in March. We spoke with the secretary earlier and began by asking him when the U.S. will resume negotiations over Iran's nuclear program. Well, the Iranians have now said that they're uh, coming back to talks uh, toward the end of November. We'll see if they actually do. <laughs> That's going to be important. Uh, we still believe diplomacy is the best path forward. Uh, for putting the nuclear program back in the box it had been in under the, uh, the agreement, the so-called JCPOA. Uh, but we were also looking at, uh, as necessary, other options if Iran is not prepared uh, to engage quickly uh, in good faith, to pick up where we left off in June when these talks were interrupted by the, the change in government in Iran. Other options, does that include military? Well, as we always say, uh, every option is, uh, is on the table. But, but, but here's what's uh, important. Uh, Iran, unfortunately, uh, is moving forward aggressively with its, uh, uh, with its program. Uh, the, the time it would take for it to produce enough fissile material uh, for, uh, for one nuclear weapon is getting shorter and shorter. Uh, the other thing that's getting shorter is the, the runway we have where if we do get back into compliance with the, uh, the agreement and Iran gets back into compliance, we actually recapture all of the benefits of the agreement. Mm -hmm. Iran is learning enough, doing enough, so that, that uh, that's starting to be a problem. Uh, Iran carried out a drone attack on U.S. forces in Syria uh, just last week. Friday, the U.S. announced sanctions um, related to this program. Do you think sanctions are going to stop Iran from trying to kill Americans? The uh, president is very much prepared to take uh, whatever action is appropriate at a time and place of our choosing by whatever means uh, are appropriate uh, to um, prevent uh, and stop Iran from engaging in, uh, in these activities or its proxies engaging in these activities. Let's talk about climate uh, and the international efforts underway. Um, the U.N. says that not a mm. single major economy in the world, U.S. among them, is living up to the targets set back in 2015 in that Paris Accord. America is one of the biggest polluters. Uh, the president's own domestic agenda faces some uncertain prospects here. How do you lead when America doesn't have its own house in order? Mm. Well, we are leading on this. The president uh, significantly increased our own ambitions and, and, and announced a new so-called nationally determined uh, commitment uh, in terms of what we will do uh, to make sure that we get uh, to, to net zero. And uh, John Kerry has been leading our efforts around the world to bring other countries along to raise their ambitions. So when we get to Glasgow in just about a day's time, uh, the world comes out together uh, with much stronger commitments that actually get us on the path to keeping to warming that does not exceed 1.5 degrees Celsius. We're not there yet. Uh, we have uh, a lot of but work to do. A lot right, of work and to these do. international commitments don't have teeth. Well, these are, these are voluntary commitments, but there is increasingly, um, I think, an understanding that we're seeing uh, every single day uh, storms, uh, droughts, uh, all sorts of natural occurrences that have been exacerbated uh, by climate change, conflict uh, driven by climate change, refugees driven by climate change, uh, fights over resources driven by climate change. This is not tomorrow's problem. This is today's problem. And I think there's a, a much greater consciousness of that. When you look around the world, the use of fossil fuels is only going up. Uh, Europe is facing a potential winter fuel crisis. China has an electricity shortage right now here in the United States. The president has called for OPEC to produce more oil. The projection is global energy consumption will jump 50 percent by 2050. These facts seem very much at odd hmm. with the things you're describing as ambition. It, the rhetoric sounds out of step. We're pushing very importantly in the, in the other direction. For example, here at the G20, again, with, uh, with American leadership, uh, we are pressing to get uh, an agreement to make sure that countries don't finance 
uh, coal projects uh, internationally. This is one of the biggest drivers of emissions around the world. But you're right, we have to actually do, uh, do what we say uh, and make sure that others that have not made uh, the necessary commitments, uh, including China, now the world's largest emitter, actually step up and do the right thing. What incentive does China have to act right now? They seem to be uh, increasingly an adversary of the United States. Well, I think the n number one uh, interest is in not being a world outlier. Their own people uh, would benefit dramatically uh, from China taking the necessary steps on, on climate change. Uh, so would the international community, to the extent that uh, China cares about uh, its, uh, how it's seen in the world, uh, it also needs to think about stepping up. I want to ask you about Afghanistan. Um, Ambassador Zameh Khalilzad, who resigned uh, this month as your envoy, was on this program last Sunday and told us that more could have been done to prevent the collapse of the government in Kabul, including pressing President Ghani harder. Should you personally have done that? Should you have been tougher? <laughs> I was on the phone with, uh, with President Ghani on a, on a Saturday night, uh, uh, pressing him to uh, make sure he was ready to agree with the, the, the plan we were trying to put into effect to do a transfer of power to, uh, to a new government that would have been uh, led by the Taliban, but been inclusive and included uh, all aspects of, of Afghan society. And he told me on the phone he was prepared to do that, but if the Taliban wouldn't go along, uh, he was ready to fight to the death, and the very next day he fled uh, Afghanistan. So um, I was uh, engaged with President Ghani uh, over many weeks, many months. Do you think you did everything you could? Is that what I hear you saying? Listen, one of the things we're doing uh, at, the, uh, at the State Department is reviewing uh, everything that we did, over, going back to, uh, to 2020 when the, uh, when the agreement was initially reached uh, with, the, with the Taliban under the, uh, under the previous administration, including the, the actions we took during our administration, because we have to learn every possible lesson uh, from the last couple of years, but also, by the way, from the last 20 years. This was America's longest war. Uh, President Biden ended the longest war. He made sure that another generation of Americans would not have to go uh, to fight and die in Afghanistan. And I think when all of this uh, settles, that's profoundly what the American people want and is in our interest. Meanwhile, uh, we are doing uh, everything we can to make good on our ongoing commitments, including uh, to uh, uh, Afghans at, uh, at risk that, uh, that we want to help. And we'll also learn every lesson we can from uh, the decisions we made. Uh, Mr. Secretary, thank you for your time today. Great to be with you, Margaret. Thank you. Face the Nation, we'll be right back. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500, 500 Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. 
They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We're joined now by the Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo. She's the president's liaison to the business community. Madam Secretary, welcome to Face the Nation. Good morning. Good to have you here. Uh, Supply chains around the world have been massively disrupted over the past few months. Um, We have all of these bottlenecks. Why haven't the ports, why haven't the truckers, why hasn't this become unstuck? Yeah, Uh, good morning. So this is, as you say, a tough issue for Americans. It's a complicated issue. I mean, last year during COVID, we shut our economy down. You know, I was the governor at the time. We shut down Rhode Island's economy. We have never seen that before. So that meant factories closed, Mm -hmm. people went home. You can't just turn the economy back on overnight. So it takes a little bit of time. I will say we are making progress. You know, due to the president's leadership, we now have the ports open 24-7 in the two largest and busiest ports. Because there are reports that those, while the president announced the 24-7 opening, that that's not actually happening out in California, that there's still backups. Business community has been complaining about that. There are backups. And as I said, this isn't something that can be fixed overnight. But the important thing is, you know, fundamentally, supply chains and logistics are run by the private sector. P- you know, people say to me, will Christmas gifts be delivered? To which I say, call FedEx. You know, that, that isn't what the government does. What we are doing, and the president is committed to this, we're using every tool in our toolbox to be supportive, to help, to unstick the mm-hmm. ports. Uh, an area that I am very focused on is the semiconductor shortage. We are leaning forward into that increasing transparency in the semiconductor supply chain to make sure that we do everything possible. But this is a direct result of COVID. It is temporary, and we are working every day to unstick these supply chains. Let me ask you about what you just brought up regarding a shortage you say the government does need to do something about here. Um, The tech companies are really worried about these long-term supply chain issues. Apple said $6 billion in lost sales because they can't get goods in time here. So in what the president just put forward in Build Back Better, this framework, it has money set aside, uh, manufacturing credit for chip production. What does this actually do? How quickly does this fix things? And do we need a mandate for domestic production? Uh, Absolutely. So, you know, America invented the semiconductor industry. We started that industry right here. At one point in time, we made in America all the chips that we needed to consume. But over time, over the past several decades, that has left our shores Mm -hmm. in search of cheap labor in Asia. Now we find ourselves uh, extremely vulnerable. And so what the president is saying is we ought to get back into the business of making chips in America, which will, of course, create jobs. How quickly? uh, Well, Congress needs to act. You know, this is a fund that will come to the Department of Commerce. It's a $52 billion Uh, set of incentives to rebuild the domestic supply here. The day after Congress passes this, it can come to us and we can get to work. Are you, just to button that up, are you mandating domestic production? Are you close to that? No, we're not mandating. No, we're not mandating Because a prominent Republican senator, I'm sure you read an op-ed, had something to that point this week. What we're doing is we are 
working in partnership with industry to incentivize domestic production, right? We want to make chips in America. So we are incentivizing companies to do that, creating jobs every step of the way. Uh, one of the things that you do hear complaints from, from retailers, from other uh, people in the business sector, is that the vaccine mandate, not a problem with the mandate per se, but claims that putting it in place at this time around the Christmas season will back everything up, that they might have labor shortages uh, as it comes to rolling this out. The White House, Jeff Zients, the vaccine czar, so to speak, uh, said there's some flexibility around these deadlines, that they're not uh, a cliff and the rules are being finalized soon. How soon do you need to push this off until after Christmas? No, I think that would be a big mistake. People want to work in a workplace where they feel safe. You see, you know, United Airlines, that was among the first to do the mandate. Their you know, number of folks applying for jobs is through the roof. The best thing we can do to get people back to work is to make sure everybody's vaccinated. Right. So, but as, can you push that till after Christmas? You, you announce the mistake. rules. It would be a mistake. You you see in the third quarter. You know, this year we're on path to have the strongest GDP growth in decades. We had a blip in the third quarter. Why? Delta Delta variant. The quicker everyone gets vaccinated, the better our economy will be. On, back on track, the quicker everybody gets back to work. I want to ask you about the president's framework agenda here. The U.S. is, as you know, because you're passionate about this, paid family leave. We don't have it in this country. The president promised it was coming. It's not in this framework. That was a concession he made. You have said this is so essential to getting the economy going. How disappointed are you that that was just given up? I am unbelievably excited that we are on the precipice of passing the most significant piece of domestic legislation in 50 years. Public pre-K, broadband for every American, massive investments in childcare. As a woman, as a working mother, I know how essential this is. But you, know, you said paid leave was essential to get paid women leave back is into essential the workplace, too, and, and that's will, not in this. We will continue to fight for that. You know, no, I don't think anyone ever expected the president would pass his entire domestic agenda in the first 10 months. It looks like he's trying to pass most of his domestic agenda and in the first 10 months. Credit, and this is not in it. This is not but, in it. So and the argument, though, throughout this from Democrats has been, if not now, when? This is a unique historic opportunity. It has to go all now in this big bill. And this is something you were so passionate about. And I am still passionate about it. And but this is not going to happen if Democrats lose the majority, is it? I don't believe that's going to happen. Again, the president's package, which which we believe will be passed very soon, probably, hopefully this week, provides tangible improvements to people's lives. Better roads, better bridges, better airports, broadband for everybody, child care, public pre-K. It is historic. Mm -hmm. Then we get to work continuing to fight for paid leave. You know, we're not backing away from it. It is necessary. But nor should we take away from the, the monumental nature of what is in this package. Madam Secretary, thank you for joining us. We're joined now by Congressman Ro Khanna. He's a Democrat from California and a leading member of the House Progressive Caucus. Congressman, good morning to you. Good morning. You just heard uh, Secretary Raimondo said that this legislation, the Build Back Better program, is going to pass this week. That's really in the hands of progressives like you. Are you a yes vote on both this and the infrastructure bill? I am. The president has shown patient and extraordinary leadership. It's time for this party to get together 
and deliver. Let me just say, I mean, politicians throw out historic transformation. If I could just say two facts of what this will do. Every American kid is going to get to go to preschool. Nobel laureate James Hankman says that is one of the biggest things we can do to create equal opportunity in America. Second, this is the largest investment ever in solar, in wind, mm -hmm. in electric vehicles. It's huge on climate. We're going to get into the details in a moment, but this vote you do expect to happen by Tuesday, uh, as some have projected, because on another network this morning, Senator Bernie Sanders was saying he wanted to try to add in some things to the bill still. Um, ph pharmaceutical and prescription drug pricing is what he talked about. I mean, that's pricey. How many changes should we expect? Well, we, we are working to add things in. I mean, the negotiations taking place. I'm going to be a yes. I think we can have the vote by Tuesday. Senator Sanders is doing a great job to actually have Medicare negotiation. I mean, that would save money and help people with prescription costs. But, but the question is... That's $350 billion over 10 years, according to Senator Sanders. Is that something that you think you can still keep the Senate on board with? Well, there are two different issues. One is the actual reduction of costs, the prescription drug negotiation. That actually saves money and saves money, brings the cost down. The other is the Medicare expansion. So people get dental, vision, hearing. By the way, a hugely popular polling place. So my point is this. I'm a yes. Progressives will be a yes. We're working to get all of this in. But here's what people are saying. It's been months. Let's get this done. But you're a yes, even if those things aren't added in. I'm a yes on the framework. Okay. Anything else that you know of that might be added into this before it goes to a vote? We're still working on getting uh, the climate provisions secured. One of the main things we've done is have a methane fee. There was the American Petroleum Institute, others uh, having massive ads against it. We fought. That will be in part of the framework. The uh, Climate Civilian Corps is part of the framework. So the climate parts are still being negotiated. Okay, because one of the uh, climate you're passionate about, I know, yes. but one of the biggest portions of the original proposal, um, the Clean Energy Performance Program is a $150 billion program that didn't make the framework. So how much of a defeat was it to lose that? It was a setback, but then the parts that were added, I think, are very strong because there was another $150 billion added to have electric vehicles, solar, wind, in collaboration with the private sector, funding new uh, energy sources. Uh, so is it a better that we had the clean electricity program? Of course, but I still believe we can hit the 50% goals by 2030 with this plan uh, in coupled with regulatory action. It is the strongest climate investment that the country has ever made. And Margaret, we're doing this with a majority that is less than President Clinton had, less than President Obama had. I mean, they had 57, 60 senators. Here you've got 50-50. And you're doing it all on a party-line vote. And, and that's the question. Why isn't there a single Republican who's for paid family leave? I mean, I heard you say, you know, paid family leave's out. Why is there no one asking the Republicans? They claim to be the working-class party. They're not with us on paid family so leave. So do you actually think things like paid family leave are not possible to pass? after 2022, if you don't hold on to the majority? I mean, some people are saying, oh, we'll get to it later. When you were meeting with the president behind closed doors, did he say to you, I can get paid family leave passed in the next year? He said he will do everything he can on paid family leave and on community Before college. Before 2022. He will do what he can, but here's the question. Well, we know what, what he can. You, you are putting so much in this one bill and passing along party lines because this is your shot. This is what Democrats say, to get what you want done. Well, I guess I'm the that other... That suggests you don't have a shot at the other. I'm the, an optimist to think maybe one Republican who gives speech after speech saying they're for the working class, they're for the forgotten American. Let's do a single bill on paid family leave. They don't want to vote for the bigger thing? Vote with us on paid family leave. Vote with us on child care. Vote with us to help the working class. We are doing this.
because the, we don't have a single Republican vote to help the working class in this country. Back on climate, um, Democratic leaders seem to be saying that you need the business community in order to hit any of these targets. The climate envoy, John Kerry, has said that. President Obama has said that. You held a hearing this week with oil executives, uh, and you went hard at them. Don't you need them to be partners and not adversaries here? What's your end game? Yes, we do. And the European companies actually are being partners. European BP and Shell, not perfect, but they're at least announcing a reduction in some of the oil production consistent with the UN goals. But American you're subpoenaing are, are, some, of are the, increasing. some of the top oil executives in this country. What is the end goal for that? The end goal is to have transparency. They're saying they're for the Paris Accord. Great. They're saying they're for climate action. Great. Well, what are they doing to actually hit those targets? Why don't they be honest and saying, okay, here's where we're going to invest in clean energy. Here's where we're going to transition. Here's where we're going to cut some of the production on oil like our European counterparts. They shouldn't say one thing and do another thing. I want them actually to be partners. I want them to own up to some of the past outrageous statements. I mean, the Exxon CEO in 2002 is saying that fossil fuel burning does not cause climate change. And the current Exxon CEO, Darren Woods, wasn't willing to say that's an outrageous statement. It'd be like if the president of the United States today was defending Andrew Johnson. Just condemn the outrageous statements in the past. Thank you very much, Congressman, for coming on. And we'll be right back with Republican Congressman from Utah, John Curtis, pediatrician and head of the vaccine program at Washington's Children's National Hospital. And we'll give you a preview of the UN summit underway right now to tackle planet that's getting hotter. Stay with us. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back to Face the Nation. The Global Summit is underway right now in Glasgow, Scotland. It is the world's latest effort to tackle the fact that the planet is getting hotter. But expectations for substantive agreements to do something about it are pretty low. The U.N. Secretary General says there's serious risk that world leaders will not deliver, urging more ambition and further action. CBS News senior foreign correspondent Mark Phillips is there. There is a cloud of gloom hanging over this conference in Glasgow, and it's not just the weather. To understand the pessimism, it helps to go back to those heavy, optimistic days in France six years ago when the Paris Climate Accords were signed. The warming of the planet would be kept below two degrees Celsius, it was agreed. Preferably, it wouldn't exceed one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels. The problem with Paris, though, was that it was a conference about aspiration, not practicalities. 
how each country would reduce its own greenhouse gases was left to later. Well, later is now, and not nearly enough has been done. It's all happening faster than you even it's feared. It's all happening faster than we ever thought. In fact, it's happening faster than scientists thought. Christiana Figueres was the UN official who knocked heads together and made the Paris Accords happen. Well, anything above 1.5 is bigger trouble is, than we thought. Well, absolutely. It's much bigger trouble. It causes two to three times as much biodiversity loss, two to three times as much infrastructure loss, and two or three times as much human misery. The misery has been all around us lately. Floods in Europe, sweltering heat domes in North America. The world has changed since Paris, particularly in the relationship between its two biggest polluters, the United States and China. Contrasting to where we were in the relationship between the United States and China in 2015, the two of them walked in literally hand in hand because over the previous years they had realized that they were better off collaborating on climate change than confronting each other. That has not been the case this year for all the reasons that we know. Not only will Chinese President Xi Jinping not be coming, neither will Russia's Vladimir Putin. If there's any cause for hope in Glasgow, it's that companies, if not governments, have begun to see the value in going green. Mark Carney, who headed the central banks of two G7 countries, has been twisting arms. You know, at present, there are leaders and laggards uh, in the financial sector, leaders and laggards uh, amongst companies. People will be able to tell who's leading and who's, who's behind, who's on the right and the wrong side of climate history. They've set up this conference to show how the future of the planet is at stake. But what are its chances of success? British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has likened it to a game where humanity is losing to climate change 5-1 at half time. And Margaret, there seems little chance of a second half comeback. Mark Strauss, Mark Phillips, thank you. We go now to Congressman John Curtis of Utah, a Republican who is scheduled to travel this week to Glasgow to attend that climate summit. Congressman, thank you for joining us ahead of your trip. Good morning, Margaret. Uh, I want to tackle some business here at home first. Uh, the House is expected to vote, as you heard, uh, this coming week on that $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure plan. This is roads and bridges. It's popular. Why are you opposing it? Well, this thing has been botched from the beginning. You know, this was negotiated in good faith in the Senate. And I have no doubt, had it come straight to the House, it would have passed with strong Republican support. But the reality of it is, we were told from the very beginning that this was coupled with the reconciliation spending, which is a no-go for Republicans. Right. But So what I hear you saying, though, is that it's about, like, optics, that it's about politics. You would have $3.6 for your state come in here as a result of this bill. Aren't you just making a political point? I mean, isn't that what people hate about Washington? So listen, my state is more worried about debt than handouts from the federal government. Sure, there's some good things in that bipartisan infrastructure bill, but the reality of it is, is that's not the vote. They've been very clear. If the bipartisan infrastructure package passes, so does the $3.5 trillion reconciliation package. Now, it may not be $3.5 trillion anymore, but I'll tell you, on foremost in Utah's mind is debt. So you expect Republicans to try to stand in the way of this? It it's like. not a standing in a way. Listen, Republicans have no control. You, you yeah. can't imagine how frustrating it is to be a Republican in the House right now. 
this is all in the Democrats' hand, and uh, I don't even know if we're going to have a vote on it. Like we were told last week, we would vote. We were right. told two weeks before we would vote. So who knows where this is going to land? Let's ask you uh, now about climate, which, um, as as we introduce you, you are going to that Glasgow summit. You're also the one of the founders of this uh, conservative climate caucus. That is something that will surprise people. They often hear climate change. <laughs> and hear very partisan points of view here. You as a Republican are trying to make a statement. Specifically, what is your message on what needs to be a viable energy source for the United States? Yeah, the message is very clear. First of all, the message is, is that Republicans do care. We've been subject to a branding problem and we need to overcome that. But loud and clear, Republicans you care. You think it's just a branding problem? Oh, absolutely. Listen, I'm, I'm here from the state of Utah and I guarantee you, there are more Republicans here than most places. And I know deep down, everybody cares about this planet. We, we want to do what's best for it. We want to leave it off better for our children. Now, we're turned, it's fair to say we're turned off by the, the extremist rhetoric. And we don't always agree on the way to get there. But I can promise you, Republicans do care deeply. And let me just show you, this caucus is a great example. I want to ask you about something specifically you spent a lot of time on, which you, in interviews I've read, talk about nuclear energy as an alternative to fossil yes. fuels. Do your constituents really want nuclear plants in their backyard? Listen, a lot of times when we think about nuclear, we think about our, our grandparents' nuclear, and, and we need to change our paradigm on that. Listen, U.S. innovation and technology can lead us past the concerns that we have with nuclear, whether it be safety or whatever those concerns are. We don't have to accept old generation nuclear. Well, uh, and, and by the way, yeah. Utah does want it in our backyard. We're one of the few uh, UAMPs here, uh, uh, a municipality, a conglomerate of municipalities is one of the few that have actually made it partway yeah. through the permitting process for a small nuclear reactor. And Pacificor, our major utility here, is working with Warren Buffett to bring nuclear. And there's $6 billion in this bipartisan infrastructure bill that would go to some of those small nuclear reactors. There's $9.5 billion to research clean hydrogen and create offices to manage it. Uh, you got to like those provisions, even though you're voting down the bill. Well, the, the fact that you could, uh, a blind squirrel could find a nut in a forest, it, right, that's, that's what it's like looking through this bill, trying to find something that you like in it. Six billion dollars out of trillions and trillions of dollars isn't really a serious effort to, to explore things that really are fundamental if we're going to get to a green future. So what is the Republican path to a green future? Specifically, what are the proposals you want to hear? Well, let me say, first of all, if, if we follow the Republican path, we don't need to kill U.S. jobs. We don't need to export uh, our jobs overseas and subject ourselves to our enemies. We have ideas that, that improve the U.S. economy, that rely on U.S. technology and U.S. innovation, such as new nuclear, as we mentioned, hydrogen. And, and listen, fossil fuels have got to be part of the conversation. We've reduced more greenhouse gas emissions here in the United States with fossil fuels than the entire Green Deal could have Green New Deal could have ever dreamed of doing. And it's a mistake to demonize fossil fuels. They're actually part of our answer. Well, part of what I hear frequently is, okay, make these adaptations, don't eliminate. But the challenge is how do you meet the moment in terms of urgency when you are trying to put in investments that take a decade or more to get there? So how do you do both things at once? Well, you have to do both things at once. And let's be honest, when we set unrealistic But how do you goals, make the market more efficient uh, if, if not for uh, creating 
um, tax credits and doing things that have government subsidies? How do you move it faster? Listen, our, our free marketplace is remarkable. It, it's, it's U.S. innovation and technology that's led to the vast reductions in carbon that we already have. And I have full confidence in this marketplace. Now, that's not to say that as a government, we don't have a role, that we, that we shouldn't be looking for those areas to incentivize and help and poke and prod along the way. But, but we need all hands on deck, and, and we need to talk about this in a bipartisan way and not just the extreme ideas, which, by the way, have led us in a terrible direction. We're, we're looking at an energy crisis this mm -hmm. winter. Rates are skyrocketing, I mean, impacting those who can least afford to pay for it. If we're not careful, we're on the path of Germany. That, that doesn't look well, good. Congressman, uh, have a safe trip. We'll leave it there. Vice President Kamala Harris got a third dose of the COVID-19 shot over the weekend and urged Americans to get their booster shot when they become eligible. Harris reminded Americans the shots are free, safe, and will save lives. In just a few days, a children's version of the Pfizer COVID vaccine is expected to be made available to 28 million children between the ages of 5 to 11 years old. CBS News senior national correspondent Mark Strassman is in Cocoa Beach, Florida, with a look at how parents across the country are reacting. There you go. You're welcome. Halloween 2021's real scare? The next dogfight in COVID America's divide. As soon as Tuesday, the CDC could join the FDA approving the Pfizer vaccine for young children ages 5 to 11. We've been waiting for this, parents have been waiting for this, schools have been waiting for this, and this is really a breakthrough. Smaller arms, smaller doses. Pfizer's pediatric vaccine has two shots, each one-third its regular dose. Clinical trials showed efficacy rates above 90%. There are enough doses to vaccinate 28 million eligible children. In the latest weekly COVID update, one in four new cases were children. Vaccinating young kids could help keep them in class, protecting them, their families, and their friends. We will be ready immediately following FDA and CDC's decisions so that parents can get their kids vaccinated quickly, easily, and conveniently. No more masks! No more masks! But amicably, fat chance. Millions of parents already burn with a resentment fever. In one survey, less than one in three parents say they'll get the COVID vaccine for young kids right away. Another third said they'll wait and see. Lives are quite literally at risk. So far, California is the only state to mandate the vaccine for eligible students grades 7 through 12, but not until next year. Ten vaccines have been required to send your kids to public schools for decades and decades. This is nothing new. But it is new in a couple ways. There are no angry crowds protesting mandatory kid vaccines for measles, mumps, or whooping cough. And there are people willing to risk their jobs rather than get the COVID vaccine. Starting tomorrow in New York City, thousands of city employees will be forced into unpaid leave. But the city says another 10,000 workers got vaccinated, pressured by Friday's mandate deadline. Get the shot or lose the paycheck. We have a right as an employer to do it. Every court has shown that. But missing cops, firefighters, and EMTs could create dangerous public safety blind spots. My body, my choice. 20% of the city's fire stations could go dark. That is how dug in they are. But compared to telling many parents they have to vaccinate their kids, child's play.
That's Mark Strassman in Florida. We're joined now by Dr. Claire Bogard, a pediatrician who also oversees the COVID vaccine program at Children's National Hospital here in Washington, D.C. Good morning to you, doctor. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So uh, your hospital participated in this trial of the Pfizer vaccine for children. You saw what happened. Um, did you have any concerns? No, I think this is all really good news. What the Independent Advisory Panel and the FDA looked at last week was really good science. They didn't skip any steps in this process. And the best news, both professionally, as someone who wants to take care of my patients, but also as a mom of a six-year-old, is that this is awesome. There are no serious side effects given this lower dose of the vaccine to this lower group of kids, and it still protects kids from getting the infection. So this type of technology, the mRNA vaccine, you don't have any misgivings about giving it to someone who's young and developing? No, not at all. Vaccines, all they do is they give your body a chance to build a response to something that's non-harmful so it can protect you against something that is harmful. And everything is risk-benefit. If there was no coronavirus in the country, well, we wouldn't be talking about a vaccine, right? But instead, there's this life-threatening disease floating around our communities. And in order to protect us, this is the safest, most effective way to do so. So the, the panel that you mentioned that voted uh, on this said the benefits outweigh the risks of myocarditis. That's a heart condition. Mm -hmm. um, did your hospital see any of that? How concerned should parents be about impacts on the heart of their child? Yeah, the hospital's research is still part of the research that uh, Pfizer reviewed last week. And again, there was no serious medical conditions or serious adverse reactions from this vaccine in that group, including myocarditis. The FDA knew this was a concern, and at the end of the summer, they asked Pfizer to increase the amount of patients in the study, and they've done so. And honestly, it's really good news. It's very safe. So one of the questions raised was whether every child needs it. Um, versus if they had COVID in the past or if there are conditions. If you're a parent at home, how should you weigh these things? It's a good question. I talk about this all the time um, with my husband, with my family, and with our patients, right? Everything is risk-benefit. So you need to think about your own individual family situation. You also need to think about the community around you. For us as parents, we don't want anything bad to happen to our kids, right? COVID has bad complications with children. Doesn't have it with all children, but has many. And it also has the complications in this young group of having long-term issues, whether it's having symptoms that last longer than two months, which is the long COVID that people talk about, or developing a very serious life-threatening condition called multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. That's the rash. Yeah, it's actually, it's where your, your body is inflamed in a very serious way and it can be life-threatening, requires critical care in some kids. That to me as a parent is enough for me to say, you know what, I don't want my kid to get a booger. I don't want my kid to get that. And if I have a choice, I'd rather use this super safe vaccine mm -hmm. to get them back into school and back to their normal life. So kids who are younger than five years old, mm -hmm. my children, toddlers, infants, um, they're still gonna have to wait. Pfizer said well into 2022 before they get vaccinated. So what's your best advice to the parents of the very young? Just stay vigilant. I'm with you too. I have a four-year-old, so I hear you loud and clear. Uh, but be optimistic. Uh, they are also lowering the dose for that group too. Keep in mind, this Pfizer vaccine has now been given to millions of people. We're just now offering it a lower dose to a younger population who has a strong immune system. So I'm optimistic that the research will still look really positive in the young kids. And I also know that scientists take this 
very seriously. They do not want to offer something that's going to harm people. Myself as a doctor, I don't want to. I don't want to go out advocating for something that I don't think is safe. Um, so I promise, hope is coming. We're almost at the end of this. Uh, but for those who are unvaccinated, you are still at risk um, for getting the virus itself. So keep with the social distancing, masking, and follow the public health guidelines in your area. The CDC director continues to say she's so concerned that only a third of pregnant women are vaccinated. If you were vaccinated while pregnant, what do you tell? your patients, about their children that they bring into you? Are those kids protected? Good question. We, we anticipate that if someone was infected uh, during pregnancy or given the vaccine, that there is a chance that they have some protection with the antibodies that mom made that uh, are shared to the child. There's also a protection if you're breastfeeding. Um, what we don't know is how protected that child is. So what we don't want you to do is assume, since you had it as a pregnant lady or a breastfeeding woman, that your child is protected because we can't guarantee that. Um, but it's all something we recommend. Doctor, thank you for your advice. Thank you. Thanks for joining us in studio. We'll be back in a moment. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This Tuesday is Election Day in Virginia and New Jersey, where voters will select their governors. Usually the party out of the White House has an advantage in these off-year races. But the one in Virginia is drawing some national attention right now as a test of just how Democrats are governing. CBS News senior White House and political correspondent Ed O'Keefe is here to help us break it down. So, Ed, we don't normally cover governor's races, but this one has taken on outside importance in the political world. Why is this mid-sized southern state so important? In essence, it sets the table for next year. This is a state that's been hewing Democratic for the last 10 years or so. But for whatever reason, they're having a competitive statewide contest this year. They shouldn't be doing that if electoral history from recent years holds. Uh, but it seems to be for a few different reasons. One, uh, you have a popular, uh, apparently well-liked Republican contender who has managed to make this about something other than Donald Trump, a local issue of concern, education, and specifically parental control of education, all stemming from a debate answer that his Democratic opponent, the former trying to be future governor Terry McAuliffe made in a debate recently where he said, I don't think parents should have control of what goes on in the classroom. In essence, trying to explain away a bill he had vetoed years ago, but the Youngkin campaign seized on this and said, what do you mean you don't want parents to be in charge after years of mass mandates and virtual schooling and all these debates about social policy and about what's being taught in school? So it, it could signal that that local issue, finding one, plus the growing unpopularity of the president, 
could be enough for certain Republicans in states where maybe they haven't done as well recently to pull it off. And it'll signal to the rest of the party, this is how you can win in the post-Trump era. Those emotional issues Absolutely. always good to galvanize people. Um, one of the things, though, that I think is interesting is to see current and former presidents out there campaigning in Virginia. And President Biden went out and helped uh, Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate, even though McAuliffe said basically that Biden's creating problems for him, headwinds, mm -hmm. and that uh, he's unpopular. Right. I mean, and Biden won the state ten, uh, by 10 points last year, but his numbers sit now in the 40s. Uh, but to bring him over to Virginia to say that his opponent is a Trump acolyte and could return the state to Trump-style uh, politics or what's going on down in Texas regarding its abortion policy. In essence, what Democrats are trying to do is continue what worked for them over the last four years, nationalize the race and warn them about what Trump-style republicanism could mean for their state. Meanwhile, Lincoln's trying to go, Youngkin's trying to go local, focusing on that issue of education, trying, insisting that he will not, has not, Mm -hmm. campaign with the former president, even though he's doing a telephone town hall for him Monday night. Youngkin says he won't be there. Trying to divert attention and say, I'm focused on these things here in the state. We'll do this on my own. What's interesting there for Democrats, though, is that they're not making an affirmative argument of here's what you get when we govern. They're saying that's what you might get if we're not governing. Well, that's what frustrates McAuliffe so much. I mean, he told me as much. He said the lack of action in Washington doesn't help me make the case that government can do things for people. So if they would only just pass this legislation they've been spending months on, it would help me make the do point. Do you buy that argument? Uh, I, in Virginia, I do because of the unique nature of Virginia, the fact that it relies so much on the federal government for employment and for its economic growth. It works there. It wouldn't necessarily work in other states. And the other thing that I've, I've noticed in, in recent weeks especially is McCullough has made the abortion argument that if they did what they did in Texas and if the Supreme Court rules a certain way, it could happen here. They insist that abortion rights is a big issue of concern for voters in Virginia, and we'll see whether it works on Tuesday. Ed O'Keefe, thank you for the preview. And all of you can watch Ed and our political team on Tuesday evening on our digital network, CBSN. They will be broadcasting the election results. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Have a happy and safe Halloween. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, California Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna, Utah Republican Congressman John Curtis, and Medical Director of the COVID-19 Vaccine Program at Children's National Hospital, Dr. Claire Bogart. The executive producer of Face the Nation's Mary Hager. The broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 10.30 a.m., 1 p.m., and 4 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. 
Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.